Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Hey everyone, before I start the show today, I want to tell you about an amazing resource that can really help your business and your leadership capabilities, regardless of where you're at in your career. The website is called strategicfinancialleadership.com, and here you can get access to free articles, past podcast episodes, courses, economic indicators, and tools like the cost of capital calculator, which sounds pretty nerdy, but also cool, right? There are also membership options for you to get exclusive access to other resources that will help you to accelerate your career and drive better outcomes for your organization. Go to strategicfinancialleadership.com and enter the discount code free month to get your first month's membership covered by us. So I think, you know, it kind of ties into that part of what really is being selfish. You've got to get that energy and you've got to get that sort of replenishment to be able to go and serve others. But then others have to be careful not to turn it into an obligation. It is free. It is it is given out of desire, not out of guilt. From Coltvar, it's the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a show about CFOs, entrepreneurs, and top business executives and their inspiring stories from inside the world of corporate strategy and finance. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and on today's show, I'll be talking with Dr. Robin Moriarty about her view on what success should look like and how we can find fulfillment by creating the life that we want rather than one built on others' expectations. Dr. Robin Moriarty is a global business executive, author, former professor, and thought leader for businesses and nonprofit organizations. All right, so Robin, question for you. You know, you were a professor at Duke University and the Fuqua School of Business, and I had the opportunity to be one of your students. And what struck me at the time was you're this global business executive, kind of a type A personality, you know, just crazy, you know, like just doing all these things in life. And then here you are, you know, traveling around with this cohort, teaching in these different countries. And I just thought, wow, this, this lady is super driven. So where did your drive and ambition come from? Were you like this highly motivated kid when you were young, or is it something that just like turned on one day? Tell me more about this. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, There's definitely a lot of drive and ambition, but the reason for me has always come from just this like voracious appetite to learn stuff. 
and then to tell other people what I learned. Because I think it's really cool when you go up a learning curve and you're studying something new or you're traveling to a new place and you're learning all these new things and then you want to share it with someone else, right? And so I think that, you know, I've worked corporate, I've led businesses, run businesses, I've taught at universities, I've written, I've done all this other kind of stuff. But the drive behind it has always been this need on my part to just kind of keep learning and keep going up learning curves and being challenged in new ways and, you know, wanting to find out new stuff. And I think, you know, when you're younger, the learning comes through school and it comes through reading and it comes through sort of more academic tracks, at least in my case. And then as I've gotten older, I realize it comes so much more through experiences And for me, so many of the experiences were travel, but then, you know, there are so many other ways to expose yourself to art, design, technology, science, all kinds of different people and different cultures to kind of keep that learning going. So the drive and ambition for me has definitely come from that appetite for learning and then the enthusiasm for sharing with other people what I learned. And that's interesting. I mean, is that something that was just part of your DNA or did you feel like you had something to prove? I mean, because I could tell you from my experience, you know, my dad left us when we were young and, you know, my mom had five kids with my father. So I grew up in this socioeconomically challenged household. So I I think, you know, my drive and ambition came from this, hey, I got to prove to the world that I'm not going to go down the same path. I'm going to be successful. I'm going to show my dad, da, da, da. And, you know, I think this was the genesis of my ambition and I think it's evolved over time, but do you have anything similar or do you think it is just built into your DNA from the beginning? Yeah, that's a really tough question, isn't it? I mean, but I love that question because it's about, you know, really who are you at your core and as a person, I think for me at my core and as a person, it's that drive for learning that is so much who I am. I think that over time, when I was in school and then in college and then after college, I definitely developed a chip on my shoulder of how do I prove myself, not just to other people, but proving myself to myself too, right? And so, you know, when you grow up and you're a bright person and, you know, you're learning and you seem to be scoring well on all the tests that people say you're supposed to score well on and you do those things, people start putting potential on top of you. And then they start putting expectations of what you do with that potential. And then they start putting expectations of do not disappoint other people by wasting your potential, right? And so I think from my perspective, there was a, a time and I think about middle school and high school and college where there was a lot of other people's expectations being put on me about do not waste your potential. And then I think as a woman, it kind of got layered on a little extra. And when I went straight from university into graduate school, and I went into sort of a male dominated field for my PhD program, and then I went into telecom, which also was pretty male dominated. And then I went into manufacturing, and then I went into data analytics, you know, so there's this thing of, well, you're a woman and you're a senior leader woman and you need to make sure you don't let everyone else down, right? Do you think that some of that, but for me, it came really more sort of externally and don't disappoint other people who've put expectations on me. And it took many years for me to start realizing that those were other people's expectations of me, not necessarily 
my expectations of me or things that I felt like I needed to do or that I wanted to do. It took quite a few years to kind of peel back those layers of other people's expectations. And I think it really hit for me when I moved to Hong Kong and I was running a business in Hong Kong. I was the head of the company for Hong Kong and South China for for consumer goods. And it was like, oh, that's it. Like I'm the head of the company. Like I did it. So why am I doing it? (laughs) What am I doing? And who, why am I still here? I've proven it to myself. I've proven it to other people. There's this little stamp that says I've done it and I did it well. And so what's next? And so I think it was like, once I hit certain expectations that then I was able to let them go. And so I think that's something that happens to a lot of people, you know, you kind of until you achieve some of those things, it's harder to let them go. But I always wonder what it's like, if you can let them go faster, you know, the things that you didn't want to do in the first place, is there a way to not have to go through the process of achieving the things you didn't want to achieve to prove to yourself and other people you could, and then you get on with what you want to do? Is there a way to just drop that first and just do what you want to do? And that's what I'm kind of experimenting now at this point in my life. Hey, real quick. I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level, or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. I mean, you bring up a lot of good points here and I'm a driven person as well. And some people say I've achieved a certain level of success, you know, that to be argued, but sometimes I feel like I'm not as successful as the world may see me as. And, you know, you've heard of the whole imposter syndrome where it's like, there's these highly capable, very successful people, but on the inside, they're thinking, wow, I'm a fraud. You know, maybe I'm not as smart as people think I am, or maybe I'm not qualified to be in this role. Have you ever felt like that as you've continued to be successful and you've had the opportunity to be a a leader in global settings and do all these amazing things. Has that ever hit you or have you always had a a high level of confidence? No, I definitely have had the whole, like, what, what am I doing here? What, how on earth did I get here? You know, what am I, what am I doing here? For sure. I think that I was fortunate early on in my career because I was surrounded by a lot of really good executives who kind of helped shape me along the way, who also acknowledge that like, no one really knows what they're doing. Everyone's kind of figuring it out along the way. Even these people that look like they're super successful, and they have these big titles, and they're running these big businesses, they're still figuring it out along the way, because there's no guarantee when you're running a business, you know, you're pretty sure the decision you're going to make is going to be the right one, but there's no guarantee of that. And so I think it was instilled in me really early on that the whole world of business is about figuring stuff out and you're never really going to have it all figured out. And so that gave me the freedom to be uncomfortable in some of the roles that I've been in, knowing that I've just got to figure it out. And I've got confidence in my ability to figure stuff out. I remember when I was 16 and I was going to get my driver's license one morning. And I don't know about everyone else, but when I was 16 and I was going to take my driver's license test, I was nervous, right? Because what if you fail? And I remember going with my mom to the driver's license office and thinking, look at all these people around here who have driver's licenses. If they can pass 
pass their driver's license test, I can pass my driver's license test, you know? And so I think I, I, I get that some days. Look at all these other people that work in business. Look at all these other people in marketing and technology and, and whatever. You know, if they can do this and figure it out, I can do this and figure it out too. And so I think I, I had confidence in my ability to figure stuff out, but I definitely have felt like an imposter and felt like I was, you know, thrown into the deep end and probably in some jobs that I wasn't necessarily qualified to be in along the way and, and had some of that, that confidence that I needed to build. But what I found out is along the way, as you get more experiences and as you figure more things out, you get better and better at doing that. And that's where that confidence comes from. So for me, I've always seen it more as kind of a cycle, but I definitely have had the situations where I sort of put on the confidence space during the day and then go home at night and go, what am I doing? I have no idea. Yeah. So if, if somebody is, you know, maybe they feel not very confident, they're not outspoken. They feel like they don't have a voice in their organization. Maybe they're a little timid, a little shy, whatever it is. How do they break out of that mold and get that confidence? I know you said you get the confidence by doing and trying and putting yourself out there, but that could be awfully scary sometimes. Do you have any advice for somebody who may be stuck in that type of mindset? Yeah. So, so, uh, and it's, and it's real and I don't want to take away from the feeling because the feeling is real. I think first I would kind of get really honest with myself about where is that feeling coming from? And is it coming from a place of technical expertise? You know, do you need to go study some stuff, you know, coding or econometrics or whatever it is, analytics, you know, do you need to go study some stuff because that feeling is coming from a lack of technical expertise? I remember one of my jobs, I had never taken an accounting class and I was with a bunch of like mega finance, corporate finance people. And I was like, you know, I need to go take a finance class <laughs> because right. I recognized that my lack of confidence was from like that technical expertise part. Then there's, I think the lack of confidence that and feeling like an imposter that comes from, I don't look like what a person who does this job is supposed to look like whether that's because of age or gender or nationality or, you know, functional area expertise or, or whatever. I always look at that one because I think that is a big one because we all have these implicit assumptions and biases. And I'm so glad the world is talking about implicit assumptions and biases more than we ever have before, but we all have these implicit assumptions and biases. And we know that we know if I say the word, you know, the words construction worker, there's an image that immediately pops into your mind of what a construction worker looks like. And sure. I did that with a group in Ireland and they were like, oh, it's a man and he wears a hat and he's got a vest. And one woman goes, and he's very hairy. And I was like, <laughs> okay, like it's in Ireland, maybe, I don't. And then if I say babysitter, you know, you've got probably an image of your mind of a youngish woman who's like a babysitter, right? If I say software developer, if I say marketing manager, if I say CEO, you've probably got some images that popped to your mind immediately then too. So if you're a marketing manager or a software developer or a CEO that doesn't look like that image of what just popped into your head of what you think it's supposed to look like and what other people around you think it's supposed to look like, you've got to look at that and you've got to start addressing those questions and, you know, kind of saying, okay, these are my own implicit assumptions and biases that are getting in my own way. Let me get some awareness there and deal with it from that perspective. And then I do think the third category, so if you're looking at sort of technical expertise, your own implicit assumptions and biases and those of others around you. And then there's this category of toxicity, I guess, where yeah. other people just kind of are really trying to psychopath you. I learned that in Spanish, psychopath to psychopath is a verb. It's an act. <laughs> 
city. When I lived in Argentina, someone taught me the verb psychopatiar, and it was because I was being psychopathed by somebody at work. And that was a really important lesson for me. But there are sometimes there are people who want to undermine your confidence out of their own competitiveness with you at work. And usually it's because they see you as someone who might be threatening or competitive to them in some sort of way. So they're trying to like take you out of your game, you know, so they can kind of get some sort of advantage. And so for me, if you understand kind of where that feeling might come from, it helps you figure out how to address it more. I think, you know, once you once you figure that out, you can go take a class on a technical expertise, dealing with your own implicit assumptions and biases has a lot to do with helping yourself understand that you belong in the role that you're in, you know, and you can belong in other future bigger roles as well. Um, just because you might not look like what you expected it to look like doesn't mean you're not competent and capable to do that role. And sure. if you're dealing with toxicity in the workplace, then that also helps you. For me, it was really helpful to know that someone was kind of intentionally trying to throw me off my game because then it helped me get a little smarter and sort of defuse the comments that people were making and just sort of put them in that kind of category of noise that didn't need to come into my everyday comments that I could sort of ignore and just keep going forward. And I kind of took it as a sign of I must be doing something well, if they feel like like I'm, you know, doing well enough to be attacked. (laughs) Sure. Tough lessons, but you know, but I think it's where does that come from? It's important. Yeah. And you make a lot of great points. And I I like your point about biases. You know, before I started traveling, shamefully, I have to admit that I saw the world very myopically. You know, I, I would look at the world and think, why don't some of these countries just adopt a democratic system, a capitalistic system, just like ours, and then everything would be fine. And then there would be world peace and poverty would be eradicated or it would be minimized quite a bit. And then I started traveling to these different countries and understanding the cultural dimensions of these different countries and realizing that, look, some of these societies have been around for thousands of years or more, right? And what works for them works for them and it may not work for us. So it allowed me to develop a greater sense of empathy and to realize, you know, what biases do I carry around and how can I overcome them? So you've been to over 60 countries. You've seen a lot of the world. How has your perspective changed since day one of traveling to your first country outside of the U S to where you are today? Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, you know, it's tough. Okay. So the first, the first time I got to go out of the U S I was 11 and I went with my family and we went on a trip to Germany and immediately I was like, whoa, I grew up in a really small town in Florida. Like my world was not very cosmopolitan. So it was kind of a big deal to go to a different place. And I was like, whoa, the world is really big. Things do not work the same way everywhere. It's kind of cool. And I want to be a part of it. And so like really early on, I got the buzz of, isn't it cool how things work differently in different parts of the world? And I remember in high school, I started, I was in like student government or whatever. We would have like things across the state of Florida. And so I got to meet like a bunch of the people from Miami who all spoke Spanish, which I thought was so cool because no one I knew spoke Spanish, right? And I went to undergrad at Duke and all my friends were from like Tri-State. And I thought that was so cool. And their accents were so funny, like New York, New Jersey, Long Island accents, you know? And so even, you know, wherever I am, I'm always like, oh, isn't this interesting, this different culture, this different group, this different way people are, are doing things. Over time, I, you know, when I was starting to travel, I definitely had those same feelings that you had of, you know, why aren't people doing it this way? Wouldn't 
wouldn't it be easier if, and I remember the first time I really had a click, I was 16, I guess. And I went to Russia on a school trip and it was still like Moscow and Leningrad. It wasn't even St. Petersburg yet. The wall hadn't come down in Eastern Europe. Gorbachev was in power in Russia, all that um, Soviet Union still. So a long time ago, kind of dating myself, but we were standing in line at a bookstore and at the bookstore, there was one line that you stand in to get a number and then another line to go with your number to pick out the book that you want and talk to the person who was who was working in the bookstore and then you got into another line with your number and you paid and then you got into another line and you picked up your book and I remember I was with a group of you know American high schoolers and everyone was like that's so inefficient what a terrible process they could do it so much better and so much easier and I was like yeah but if your goal is full employment that's a pretty good way to get full employment (laughs) and it, it was the moment that like it really dawned on me that it depends on what you're trying to maximize on how you're going to design your system and the way and the way things work and not everyone's trying to maximize the same thing which really kind of blows your mind so then you go to lots of different countries and cultures and living different places and seeing that and then you move back to the U.S. And when I moved back to the US, I lived abroad. I traveled extensively my whole life, but I lived abroad for 10 years. I was in the Middle East. I was in Latin America. I was in Asia. And then I came back to the US and it was the biggest culture shock I've ever had (laughs) in my life because I was expecting it to be easy and known. I had changed a lot. I think the US had changed a lot in the years that I was gone. I was gone from like 2002 to 2012. So a lot of things happened, you know, sort of right after 9-11 and, you know, financial crisis, different wars. There was a lot that happened during that time period. And I came back and the U.S. felt really different. But part of it was because I was really different, too, because all these other experiences. I started seeing inequality that I probably didn't see before I moved away. And I saw how much of the U.S. is like so competitive. And even the words we use, I'm going to crush you. I'm going to smash you. I'm going to, you know, kill you, beat you down, you know, all these like (laughs) very competitive and aggressive and like violent words that we use. And I noted the individualism of the US um, and how individualistic we are and what we strive for. And I think that was just such a contrast from having lived in cultures that were sort of more group oriented than individual oriented and having lived in places where people weren't necessarily trying to maximize financial gain, where they were trying to maximize, you know, family and friends and sort of a more holistic approach to life. And I think for me, I brought back a lot of that with me and brought some of those ideas into my personal life here in the US now, but also even in my business life of, you know, you don't have to just seek financial gain, you know, you can recognize that you can pursue other objectives inside your organization and inside your work life as well. Sure. And that's a great point. I mean, when it comes to travel, what advice would you give to somebody who is maybe early on in their career, a little bit younger, they don't have a lot of money, but they want to see the world, but they don't want to go into debt to do it. What would you say to them? Get out there and see the world or save your money and buy a house and <laughs> buy that couch and redo that kitchen and buy oh. that car. Or Because th- this is where my wife and I differ. She loves the idea of like redoing our kitchen. And I'm like, wow, that's like 10 trips, you know, abroad. And yeah. it, you know, it's just different priorities, right? But what's your take after being to 60 countries? Are you like, wow, definitely travel. I would not do it any differently. Or what's your thought? Yeah. And here's where I'm going to admit my massive bias, <laughs> I have a huge bias here towards experiences and learning. And I definitely feel like the younger you are, when you can do it, the better. 
that doesn't mean you can't do it at any age. I have friends who took a year off, they took a sabbatical and they took their two kids for a year around the world. And they did a bunch of Airbnbs and, you know, spent less than they spent in a year in New York for sure. You know, kind of, kind of had that experience for themselves and, and for their kids. You know, I think it's possible. But for me, the thing about travel, a lot of people think, oh, it's just vacation. It's glamorous. You're just like hanging out. But if you're really traveling with the purpose of learning and growing and experimenting and seeing new things. It is such an education and there's nothing that's going to give you that education like a trip. Now, that does not mean flying on a US airline, getting picked up by a driver to go stay in a JW Marriott and order cheeseburgers and eat pizza while you're gone, right? It means going and traveling and staying in local places and meeting local people and, you know, interacting in ways that locals interact, having those kinds of conversations. It means going to the grocery store not just going to fancy restaurants. It means, you know, really immersing yourself in the culture to understand the way things function differently. But I think that there is nothing as valuable for you as getting those different kinds of experiences. And the, the, the value in it for me comes from being forced to figure out different ways to do things which to me then translates to a creativity, a flexibility and adaptability that no matter what your job is in the future is going to be relevant to you. There is so much importance on knowing that there's just more than one way to solve a problem, having flexibility, having the adaptability to be able to, you know, kind of pivot and say, okay, well, this isn't really working. So how am I going to try something a different way and have it work? You know, how can I come up with a new way to solve the problem? If we learned anything in 2020, it's about the importance of being able to pivot in the face of uncertainty, right? Yeah, and so, and so I think that, you know, for me, being able to go into many different environments while traveling and learning how many different ways you can order a glass of water, you know, learning how many different ways, you know, people solve transportation problems, learning how many different ways, you know, you can pay for something at a 7-Eleven convenience store around the world, you know, learning how many different ways you can get regular day-to-day life stuff done just puts me in a place where I know that whatever the problem is, there's some creativity and flexibility and adaptability that I can call on to help figure out how to, how to get something done that I feel like people who haven't had that many kinds of experiences or been forced to figure it out, maybe just don't have. Yeah. And that's huge. And, and what a great life skill. So how does somebody do that? They're listening to this and they're, they're thinking, Hey, I, I want to go abroad. I want to work abroad. I want to, you know, expand my horizons. How do you do that? Do you look online for international jobs? And I, I mean, how do you even start the process? Oh my gosh. So I've had so many conversations about this in 2020 because so many people are like, can I just move somewhere now since we're all working online anyway? <laughs> can I just go? And I'm like, check the laws and check the, <laughs> the immigration laws and you don't want to get stuck doing something something illegal. So that's it first. But for me, what the, the ways that I have seen it done really well, and I think this depends on your own risk tolerance and level of adventure. I mean, I know people who've just literally like grabbed a backpack and wandered around and, you know, lived on $5 a day and slept in hostels and done all of those kinds of things and sort of figured it out along the way, made a little bit of money here and there along the way. That is not me. So I will say I am in awe of those people. I'm really impressed by them. I wish I was one of them. I'm not. For me, the way I always did it was in the context of school or work. And I've 
helped other people do this too. Like short-term assignments, one, two, three month assignments with your company working somewhere else that you might have business or you might want to be setting up business. That's not that hard to convince. If you are willing to pay your own Airbnb, pay your own meals, you know, companies aren't going to go and set you up in a four season somewhere for three months while you wander around and work from Singapore or whatever, right? But what they will do is say, okay, well, we're trying to open an office in, you know, some country and you say, let me go and I'll scope it out. And you can go, you can get your own Airbnb, you can get your own, you know, you're going to pay for your food anyway, when you're at home. So why not pay for it when you're there? And you can sort of share those costs, which makes it easier for your company to say, okay, go ahead, go work from there. I had one person that worked for me and uh, she really wanted to get our Spanish good. And so uh, we sent her to Uruguay for three months and she went down there. She paid, we paid for the plane ticket out of the company's pocket and she paid for her Airbnb and all our food and transportation those three months and came back fluent in Spanish and speak Spanish every day now. And that was, you know, she was working while she was there and she was getting those extra skills and learning all of that flexibility flexibility and adaptability as well. So I think that's like a great model for people. I think the idea that you're going to go and get sent on an expat package, that's so rare now that used to be what happened, but people have learned that it's not actually a hardship assignment (laughs) to move around the world. So not so many expat packages anymore, but I think that you can sort of negotiate with your company for sort of short and medium term assignments in places. And that's the best way to do it. And Without that, then for me, it's, you know, use your vacation time and use your frequent flyer miles off your credit card or whatever to go and start scheduling trips, but scheduling the kinds of trips that are going to get you some of that immersive experience, not the kinds of trips that are going to get you no offense to JW Marriott, but that's not where you're going to get the real nitty gritty experience of being in a different culture. Yeah, that immersive experience like you're talking about. That no, that's great advice. So let's switch gears here a little bit and let's talk about your book. So what game are you playing? What prompted you to write this book when you already had so much on your plate? And what kind of rewards have you received from it? Yeah. So little glutton for punishment. Um, the, the book was a really a creative outlet and it happened as a book because I was sitting in my office one day and like my best work friend came into the office and he was kind of upset and jury and huffing and puffing and sort of waving his arms around and stomping around the office going, that guy's winning and we're losing. And he kept stomping and waving his arms. He's winning and we're losing. And I was like, what are you talking about? And it was the day that our executive CEO compensation had been announced publicly. And obviously it was a lot of money. And he was like, that guy, he's getting paid all that money. He's making so much more than we are. He's winning and we're losing. And I looked at him and I said, I don't know what you're talking about because I'm winning. And he like froze Mm. and he looked at me and he goes, what are you talking about? (laughs) Because he knows I'm not making more money than the CEO. And I said, well, I'm not playing the game of who can make the most amount of money. I'm playing the game of who gets to spend the most amount of time in the coolest places around the world. And I'm winning that game. And I said, you don't have to play the game that other people are playing. You have to play the game you want to play. And I'm playing the game that I want to play and I'm winning that game. And I kind of pointed to my calendar on the wall that had all the cool places I traveled to that year. I was like, I'm winning. And he paused and he looked at me and he goes, that's brilliant. You should write a book. And that was the moment that it like clicked of what the, of what the hook for the book was. Right. But I think more deeply, the book was really about my own slow process of figuring out like what, 
I want in my life and how I want to live my life and how the way I live my life is different than all those expectations that people had put on me that I talked about earlier. It is different than the way I was supposed to be living my life. And I've been choosing a different path and I've had to peel back and get rid of all those expectations that other people have put on me in order to be able to go forward living the life the way I want to live my life instead of the way other people tell me to. And had a lot of conversations with people who have shared experiences that suggest a lot of people struggle with that and struggle with how do you really do what you want to do as opposed to what everyone else says you're supposed to do? And how do you deal with like the fears of missing out or the fears that you're not keeping up with your peers or someone else is ahead of you? We're so competitive in the US. (laughs) Someone else is ahead of you. Someone else is beating you. How do you do that? And I said, well, if we think about it as a game, you know, we all like to play games and win games. So why Why don't you design the game that you actually want to play and design the game that you actually want to win, you know? And so that's kind of what the book is about. It has different tools and resources for how do you think through some of those big questions of what are your own desires versus the expectations that other people have put on you? And how can you kind of go from the way you're living your life right now, which probably has a lot to do with doing the things you're supposed to do as opposed to doing the things you want to do? And how can you kind of peel back those those layers and then reconstruct and move forward living a life that's a life that you know works for you that may or may not be the life that everyone else expects you to live sure and in the book really resonated with me I, I read the book great book two times in my recent past when I kind of stepped back and thought what the heck am I doing the first time was when I was at Ernst and Young working in public accounting my wife was pregnant um, we were about to have our, our daughter in a couple months and I was sitting on a beach in Mexico and she's like you are miserable to be with you're always moody you know you're coming home you're always just angry at the world. And I was pale. I was out of shape. I was tired. I was burnt out. I wasn't doing something I was passionate about. And I left and I pivoted. And then, you know, recently I was the CFO of a a large company doing great things, had some international exposure. It was a, a great thing. And from the outside, people probably thought, wow, great job. You know, this is a, a great job to have and a, a great title, position, whatever. But to me, I was like, this just isn't filling my passion, my purpose. So I pivoted. But there's been other times in my life where I'm playing this game and it's not my game. It took me a while to recognize, or maybe I never recognized it. So, how does somebody come to that self awareness would be one question. But then the other part of that is some people, they know they're not playing the right game. They're miserable. Like every Sunday night, they're like, oh my gosh, I got to go into work tomorrow. I hate my life. Like how late can I stay up on Sunday night? So I don't have to go <laughs> in and they talk about it. They just don't do anything about it. So self-awareness and like falling into the trap. Talk, talk about that. Yeah. So, so the awareness part, it's so funny because I, I think that when I've had this conversation with people, it's, you, you just said, I'm, I'm in Mexico, right? People start having these realizations when they've actually slowed down long enough to be like, whoa, what is happening? Right. And then there's also this combination of like burnout and maybe even someone really close to you and important to you, someone you love saying, what, what happened to you? <laughs> sort of a little <laughs> face by someone who's important to you. And so I sit there and I go, why do we all have to get to that point where we're burned out, where people around us who love us and that we love are irritated <laughs> with yep. us and fed up with us, where we're not taking care of ourselves and where 
you know, we're kind of keeping ourselves so busy running that rat race that we don't even notice. And so for me, I think that, you know, most people realize it in that, in that pattern that you just described. But for me, if you want to really, you know, kind of not hit that point of burnout and loved ones being irritable or irritated with you, you know, it is that process of like slowing down and really looking and sort of asking yourself, what am I doing? Because I want to do it. And what am I doing? Because these are voices of people in my head along the way that told me I should be doing it, or sort of, maybe I didn't know what else to do. So I might as well do this because it's what everyone else is doing, right? And sort of slowing down and saying, is that really what I am wanting for myself? Or are these expectations that have been put on me externally that then I've accepted as things for myself? And that's a really big mega identity learning who's in my life and why are they here and what do they want from me kind of kind of process. And in the book, there's an exercise that says, what do they want for me and what do they want from me? And every now and then I'll think about who's in my life and who I'm close to. And I'll ask myself that question. What do they want for me and what do they want from me? And then I'll ask, what do I want for them and what do I want from them? And it's a really good exercise to kind of go through with yourself, but then also with the people who, you, who you're close to, because it starts helping you understand, like, if you're on the same page. And, you know, what I found is a lot of times I'll think people want something from me that they actually don't want. And so I've like sure. created this thing that's not even true. And so just starting there, um, I think is a really powerful place to start to get to some awareness without having to go through a big burnout and a crash. And a lot of people, you know, end up in breakups and different really difficult situations because they waited too long to get that awareness. And then I think there are the people that you mentioned who Sunday night get the blues and have a really hard time getting themselves sort of unstuck. And I was actually having, um, I was having a cocktail with a friend and she said, can your next book be like, how do you hit the eject button? If you're like living the wrong life. She's like, where's the eject button? And I was like, wow, you know, what if it was that easy? <laughs> but it's not. Sure. But it really starts with that courage to realize that you're not living the life that you want to be living. And that's really hard. And I get very irritated when it's presented in books or movies or other media as something that happens very quickly. And then as soon as you change, everything's wonderful. And, you know, you're in, you're in happily ever after. And for me, it was like years of awareness and like realization and then moving to make changes and then continuing to kind of morph and evolve. So for me, it's just sort of this process of how, how I live my life of checking in with myself to make sure I'm doing what I want to do. And when I'm not going, all right, you got to back up and then you got to start, you know, marching in a different direction because you got off course. Right. But it involves getting very honest with yourself. It involves getting very honest with those people around you and getting comfortable with the idea that some of the people who are in your life at one point in your life may not be able to accompany you into the next phase of your life. And I've had friendships and relationships that were really great in one phase of my life, but couldn't sort of evolve into the next phase. And that's really hard and it's really sad 
but it would have been more sad and more hard to have stayed kind of stuck in a situation that wasn't good for me. And then it was going to turn into a situation that was resentful and wasn't good for them either. And so I think, I think what keeps most people in those situations is that fear of letting go and moving on and wondering if the people that you're with now can accompany you into different phases. And many of them don't want you to go in to grow and to go into different phases. And that's where you've got to start looking for support and new kinds of support from different kinds of people. And for me, this process, which was, I mean, just going to be honest, this is brutal stuff. Sure. You know, this process for me was a lot of it. I was living abroad and I was going through a divorce in the middle of all of it. And I was surrounded by a group of people who were very much trying to get me to live my life in a very traditional way, get married again, have kids, let's live down the street from each other. And I was like, that is not how I want to live my life. And it's not what I want for myself. And I remember sitting around brunch one morning, like it was like a Sunday or whatever, just sitting on a terrace somewhere in Argentina. And I just looked around the table and I was like, I gotta get some better friends. (laughs) (laughs) These are not, these are not the people who are going to be able to support me you know, these are the people who are going to try to keep me in the box that I'm in now. And they're not people who are going to support me as I try to move into this different phase and this different period of growth that I was on the verge of going through. And it's hard. And then you sit there and go, well, how the heck do you make new friends when you're an adult? You know? <laughs> like, sure. Yep. Making friends as a grown up is hard, but that's an important part of it. And going and seeking different kinds of support and being intentional about that. When you become aware, when you find yourself stuck, and then when you're trying to get yourself unstuck. Well, and I mean, you mentioned that number one, it's scary, right? Super scary to, to transition. And also the friends, the friends piece, they may be holding you back. But what if somebody argued and said, look, Robin, that's just selfish. You know, my parents, they worked the same accounting job for 30 years and they didn't like it, but they just worked hard and had that grit and supported their family. And that's what life's about is persevering through the tough stuff. What's the balance there of people coming across as entitled or, oh, my life isn't always rainbows and sunshine. So I have to make another transition and in being that flaky person versus, hey, have some grit, stick through it and, you know, live life like it's supposed to be, I guess. What's your thought on that? Like it's supposed to be. I'm right, like gonna... it's supposed to be. <laughs> I have moments when I'm like, I'm kind of jealous of those people who marry their high school sweetheart and kind of live in the same town that they grew up in and, you know, have these really nice lives. And then when I think about it for myself, I go, oh my gosh, I would, that would feel very suffocating for me because I'm a different person and I'm glad that that works for them, but that definitely doesn't work for me. And I do think that there are, when when people say it's selfish, it kind of hits in a certain way. But for me, when I think about it, I think if I'm surrounding myself with people who love me and people who I love, they're wanting me to be my full self as much as wanting them to be their full self. And if they are asking me to be less than who I am, then that's, that's problematic. It doesn't mean throw people out the window and move on, but it means there are some really serious conversations there about what do we want from each other and what do we want for each other? Right. And so I think for me, that's a big part of it. And then I think from there, if you are coming from a place of someone who's loving you and people who are, you know, you're loving them, then you can start finding some different compromises and getting creative. And I go back to that flexibility and adaptability part of how do you fulfill 
some of the things that you need to do while also maintaining your responsibilities to people in your life who presumably you want to do things for them, right? Because you want to be there for them and support them and care for them and love them, right? And so for me, when I think about it, I say, you know, first and foremost, when someone throws the selfish thing, I automatically pause and go, okay, what do you want for me and from me? And what do we want for and from each other? But I also think, you know, how can we get creative to make sure everybody's needs are getting met? And that's where I think in the US, I feel like we've just failed so much with creativity and models of how to get needs met and sort of our social contracts inside our homes. And again, I go back to 2020 and I I look at all of my friends and I, I look at all of the different ways people have juggled jobs and kids and COVID, just, you know, just all of these different things. And, and I look at the way people juggle in other countries And it just shows me how much room for kind of renegotiating who's responsible for what and when that there can be, you know, and I I looked at, you know, there was a, there's a friend of mine, this is, you know, this is just anecdotal, but, you know, she was like, well, the yard and the pool were the responsibility of her husband and the laundry and the cleaning were her responsibility. And because you can't have people inside the house, but you can have them outside, her husband's responsibilities continued to be taken care of by third parties and her responsibilities all landed on her, you know? And I was like, you know, I think you need to go renegotiate that. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, what do you mean? I can renegotiate it. And I'm like, yeah, I think you need to go have a conversation, you know, because she was starting to drown under all of this stuff, but it didn't even occur to her that she could go and renegotiate that. Right. And so I think for me, I, I just look at if you're in a situation and someone's saying you're being selfish and you should just grit it out because that's what you're supposed to do. I would also say, yeah, but the kind of life I want to live and the people I want in my life are ones that aren't going to want me just to be grumpy and gritting it out and doing it because I have to, they're also going to want me to be getting some joy out of this. Yeah. So how do we renegotiate what we're doing and leave time open for Tuesday nights, this and Thursday nights, this and fun and joy and, you know, life. Yeah. And well said. I mean, this whole idea has has been recurring throughout my life. And, you know, when you're a driven person, you have to make sacrifices. And, you know, sometimes those sacrifices come in the form of people and relationships. And I read a book once and I really love this book is it's called How to Fly a Horse. And Kevin Ashton, he's the author and and he's talking about this idea of selfishness. And in, in this part of the book, he says, look, the world has it backwards. They try to say, hey, Robin, Steve, you're being selfish and you should go out there and serve people and do all these things, do all this stuff for other people in taking it in your terms, Robin, play their game, right? But then when we do that, we're going to be resentful. We're not going to be living the life that we want. We're not going to be our best selves. So how's that going to impact your relationships? Instead, selfishness is not doing all the stuff for ourselves. Selfishness is when we do stuff for other people. And don't take that the wrong way because I, I believe in serving people and helping people out. But if you just give away all your time, all your energy to other people, and you're not putting on that oxygen mask, that metaphoric oxygen mask on the plane first and building yourself, then you're not going to be developing the skills and capabilities and the talents that you were given to help other people in the world. So it's, it's this funny, like paradox, but it's such a balance to me. I I love that. And I, I actually, I talk a lot about 
how I spend my time and my talent and my resources, because I think that's, you know, your energy and, and what you're doing with it is really a big choice in life. And I realized at one point in my life, I was getting really resentful because people had started misunderstanding my generosity with my time, my talent, my resources as an obligation. And so I was helping people with different things. And they were then turning that into an obligation of me helping them. And I said, that really makes me angry, because then you're taking away my ability to be generous. And it's not that I want something back from you. But it's that I enjoy serving other people. I enjoy sharing things with other people. I enjoy being generous to other people. But when someone creates an obligation, out of that where they expect that to happen regularly. And it's my responsibility now to do that for them as opposed to my choice. That's a big thing for me. So I think, you know, it kind of ties into that part of what really is being selfish. You've got to get that energy and you've got to get that sort of replenishment to be able to go and serve others. But then others have to be careful not to turn it into an obligation. It is free. It is, it is given out of desire, not out of guilt. Yeah, absolutely. And great point. I want to end with this this last point. And it's something that came up in a previous conversation with you. When you're talking about your experience in Argentina, and you had this big aha moment about the inequality in socioeconomics and bankability and, and how some people, they may not have the opportunity that other people have just because of systems and institutions and how things are set up. And I, I want you to share that message with the listeners, because especially for a, a strategic financial financial leadership podcast. I think the topic's very relevant, but it, it really struck me and it, it got me excited actually last time we uh, we talked about it because I was like, wow, there's really an opportunity here. So maybe you could tell about that aha moment that you had in Argentina. Yeah. So let me, let me tell the story. So when I moved to Argentina, my company had hired someone to work in my house. This is very common in Argentina to have a housekeeper because there's not a dryer or a dishwasher and you have to stand in line to pay bills and things like that. So it's very common to have help in your house for your company to help make that possible. So the woman that was hired, her name's Carmen. Carmen is, has been like my Italian mother. I never knew I needed ever since. And that was 2003 when we met. And so Carmen worked three jobs. One was a formal job, two were informal jobs, commuted two hours from her home twice a day to and from the city on a bus, often dangerous, got mugged sometimes on the way home. It just was like an awesome person, single mom with two kids and two grandbabies, built her own home with like literally like every brick laid, you know, by her and people that she knows in a pretty awful neighborhood in outside of Argentina, outside of Buenos Aires. And she was one of the hardest working people I've ever met. And because of the economic situation there and the systemic inequality and the two informal economy jobs, one formal economy job, there was no way any bank was ever going to touch her. No one was ever going to give her a loan. No one was ever going to give her a credit card. She was just living completely in the cash economy. So I was working with one company there. Fast forward a few years later, I start working for a different data and analytics company that's in the financial services industry and works on access to credit. So credit scores and things like that. And I remember when I started working for that company, I was like, wait a minute. So you're telling me that credit scores come from bank data. So banks give companies data, they make scores out of that, and then they sell the scores back to the bank so the bank can make decisions about loans. 
So if you don't have bank data, if you don't have bank account, then you don't really have a credit score, which means you're not going to really be able to get a loan. And I remember learning that, you know, more than half of the people in Latin America were unbanked or underbanked, which means their ability to get a loan from a formal institution was very limited. And I remember immediately thinking, that's Carmen. And I was like, Carmen's getting screwed. And I got really angry at the system because of the way it was constructed and the impact it had on people like Carmen. And so then I started going, well, wait a second. So as a company, we make money off of creating credit scores and selling credit scores, but we're ignoring like half of the population (laughs) because half the population is unbanked or underbanked. So if there is data about them, it's incomplete data and you can't really make scores about it. So I started going, we need to be doing a lot better. And so I started pushing for initiatives in that region. And I didn't talk about corporate social responsibility. And I didn't talk about doing the right thing for underserved classes and society. I talked about untapped market segments and unmet market needs. And we went after data from retailers to transaction data from supermarkets and other kinds of retailers. We went after data from telecom companies. We had some different kind of geo census, other kinds of data that combined with whatever little data we might have from the banking relationships these people had, we could make sort of quasi behavioral scores that then companies that sold, you know, electrodomestic goods, so washer, dishwashers and television sets and things like that, they could use that to start financing these purchases of people and helping them start to build credit. And so I sat there and I was like, how have we not been doing this before? <laughs> and why aren't we doing more of this? And last year we had an estimated 16 million people in Latin America get access to credit who otherwise would have been previously automatically denied because of the lack of data on them because of the unbanked, underbanked status. And so I sit there and I look at that and I go, you know, our responsibility as business people, and when we think not just about shareholder capitalism, but stakeholder capitalism, and we think about how our businesses thrive when the communities in which we operate thrive, and how each of us, regardless of our industry, has some group of people that are currently an untapped market segment that with some creativity and building some business models a little bit differently than the way the regular business model is built today, we can address systemic inequalities and create business opportunities for our own organizations. And I think in 2020, you heard so much and you saw big dollars committed by big companies to start looking at underserved and communities that have been systemically left out in the financial services industry. And I think that you're going to see that in other industries as well, where there are going to be challenges to create new business models, new ways of doing business, to start tapping into market segments that have always been there, that are regular business models, unfortunately ignored. So that gives me a lot of drive 
and passion and desire to keep working hard to figure out how to get access to credit for people who normally aren't able to get access to credit in whichever country they're living in and whichever system they're in. And I know that it's possible. And I know that it just takes a little bit of extra creativity and a little bit of, not a little bit, a lot of just persistence yeah. <laughs> and stubborn and stubbornness, <laughs> but to be able to push that through. And I think other people who are listening to this podcast, think about it in your company, in your industry, where those opportunities are and how you can create momentum inside your own organization to help address some of the issues around inequality. Yeah. And I, and I love that. And I, I think that ties in nicely to the whole conversation we've been having. Unless you get out and push yourself and put yourself in uncomfortable situations and you see more of the world, you're not going to be able to discover these unmet needs of these untapped markets. And oftentimes we think, oh, all the ideas out there have already been generated and all the opportunities that existed are, are gone, right? Like everything's been thought of and you know, mm-hmm. what, what other business models could we possibly have? Um, but yeah. you're right. I, I think like having that exposure and immersing ourselves in different cultures and thinking more inclusively and, and having that diversity and celebrating all this stuff, it just opens up so many opportunities for us, both personally and professionally. And I, and I love that story because I think it brings everything together so nicely. And it's, it's very inspiring because you know, you're absolutely right. There is so much opportunity out there in the world. We just have to you know, shift our mindset, make sure we're playing the game that we want to play and we're passionate about something and helping people. And, and when we do that, incredible things could come about. Exactly. That's so well said. Exactly. So thank you, Robin, for being such an inspiration. You know, I admire the things that you're doing, both personally and professionally. And it's been so great to have this conversation with you. So thank you for joining me on Strategic Financial Leadership today. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk about some of my favorite things. (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate it. You're welcome. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at I would love to connect. All the best.